This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, another key Obama administrator is stepping down. Peggy Hamburg, FDA commissioner for the past six years, announced she is leaving her post at the end of March, saying she does this with mixed emotions. Well, she certainly racked up a number of achievements during her tenure, Mark. She worked to modernize food safety, oversaw stricter tobacco regulations, and improved the review process for medical drugs. She has a very large territory to cover as FDA commissioner with thousands of drugs to oversee and the food stream often threatened by numerous toxins and pathogens that are harmful to the population. Well, it's kind of interesting to look back six years and think how much has changed. Certainly, the FDA has had to adapt to a growing infiltration, if you will, of medical devices, wearables, Mm -hmm. apps that purport to improve health. The advance of genomics alone is changing the drug testing protocols that can take 15 years and cost billions of dollars. So keeping pace with this ever-changing landscape is no easy task, and I think people generally feel she did it quite well. You know, speaking of changing landscapes, uh, in a relatively short period of time, a new generation of parents uh, has opted not to vaccinate their children in this country. And we're starting to see some of the dire consequences, Margaret. The measles outbreak continues to run apace, and the CDC is out with statistics. There have been numerous outbreaks uh, across 14 states that began in 2014 and continue to spread. You know, Mark, people just are not used to seeing this in the 21st century. Certainly most of our provider colleagues haven't seen measles uh, in Mm -hmm. their careers since we've had the availability of the measles vaccine. But a number of parents have been following some other guidance about vaccinations and thousands of people truly at risk for contracting these potentially fatal conditions. And in the case of measles, something that is just so highly contagious. You know, I just thought years ago we were reporting that they eradicated measles. This whole issue has created a firestorm of debate as frontline providers uh, We're uh, very concerned about the evidence-based case supporting vaccination of newborns, boosters for teens, and annual flu shots. It's eliminated so much disease, death, and heartache. Hopefully, this is not going to be a growing trend. Well, we hope not. Vaccines and immunizations are the cornerstone of good population health. But I I will tell you, nothing will bring this to the fore like people seeing their children sick. And that's a a sad reality that we're going to try and prevent. Our guest today, Margaret, is Adriel Bettelheim, Managing Editor for Health at CQ Roll Call, has been keeping a close eye on the political goings-on in the Beltway. He's one of the top analysts on government health policy. Uh, Looking forward to that conversation. Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org, will be stopping by. She's always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter at chcradio. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Adriel Bettelheim in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Ariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. 80 million and counting, the estimated number of Anthem customers across the U.S. whose records were compromised by hackers. The nation's second largest insurer says hackers broke into a database containing records for millions of customers and employees in what is looking like the largest data breach of a healthcare company to date. The breach said to have exposed names, addresses, and social security numbers, but doesn't appear to involve medical or financial details. Anthem, which runs Blue Cross Blue Shield plans in a number of states, is going to reach out to all customers they believe were compromised and will offer credit protection services to those who wish it. 
California is ground zero for a major measles outbreak that was believed to have started at Disneyland, infecting hundreds of people with a highly contagious disease. The state of California is considering a law that would remove personal preference as a justification for not vaccinating children. The proposed California law would require all state children to be fully vaccinated before entering school. You can call him the genomics president. President Obama announced an initiative to advance medical and scientific research by collecting genetic data from at least a million American volunteers. The data to be used for large-scale studies on genetic properties of common chronic disease like diabetes, heart disease, even cancer. The move has actually garnered a modicum of bipartisan support. And according to a recent survey by NPR and Truven Health Data Analytics, a majority of Americans have no problem sharing their de-identified health data for research purposes. 53% of Americans say they wouldn't mind having their data used for research. However, that number is down from 68% a mere six months ago. Studies suggest folks might be a bit more skittish about privacy and security than they were last year. And you might call this the Florida surprise as the February 15th deadline marks the end of the second round of open enrollment. We see a patchwork quilt of coverage across the country with far fewer Americans enrolled in insurance or Medicaid in states that fought the health care law. Florida being one of the most vociferous opponents, well, at least its political leadership. By January of this year, 1.27 million Floridians have signed up for health coverage under the Affordable Care Act ahead of California's numbers. Notable because California has its own exchange and launched a significant campaign to sign residents up. Supporters in Florida have run an old-fashioned grassroots campaign combined with a sophisticated state map showing areas where participation is lacking, hooking in customers at rodeos, school events, and some 3,000 town hall events across the state. Nationally, the number of people who will have signed up is expected to exceed the administration's predictions. An estimated 20 million Americans will have gained some kind of coverage by the end of round two. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Adriel Bettelheim, Managing Editor for Health at CQ Roll Call, a subsidiary of The Economist. CQ Roll Call is a leading provider of congressional news and legislative tracking, boasting the largest press corps on Capitol Hill. Mr. Bettelheim has served as health regulation team leader at Bloomberg News. He was a reporter and senior editor at the Congressional Quarterly and worked as a reporter at PolitiFact, the Denver Post, and Syracuse Herald Journal. Mr. Bettelheim has earned uh, several awards, including the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting, along with his team, as well as the Sigma Delta Chi Bronze Medallion for Public Service Journalism. He earned his BA from Case Western Reserve University. Adriel, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Uh, nice to be with you. You have a great bird's eye view of the goings on inside the Beltway and. Uh, You know, there's an old saying, may you live in interesting times. And certainly for a health reporter, the gift that keeps on giving is the Affordable Care Act. You know, we estimate that 20 million Americans have gained coverage under the health law. And yet the GOP-controlled Congress is still talking about repeal. I think this was their 56th uh, vote uh, just recently. And, uh, And yet really no focus in on replacing it. Can you give our listeners sort of the insider view of the political lay of land surrounding the health care law where it stands right now? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's two types of legislation that the Republicans are pushing. One is kind of the broad spectrum, such as the, the total repeal vote that was taken in the House. And this would be basically the scorched earth, eliminate the whole law. And then there are more targeted strikes taking aim at the risk corridors that, that insulate the insurers from losses. You know, the big sweeping laws are, are largely for the hardcore conservatives and new members who ran against the law and who want to register their opposition now that they're in office. The more targeted strikes, you could be looking at them as kind of bargaining chips for discussions later in the year when there's must-pass legislation, for example, to increase the government's borrowing authority. So you have to kind of look at it that way. But realistically, I mean, none of the big proposals the Republicans are considering have a chance of getting by presidential veto, even if they can get 60 votes in the Senate as long as Obama's president. Uh, politically, uh, maybe they're setting out markers for 2017 mm -hmm. if a Republican candidate captures the White House. And even if they don't, there's possible changes afoot. Well, Adriel, I think everybody agrees the ACA had its roots really embedded within a proposal, and you could say initially drafted by uh, the conservative heritage group. And Orrin Hatch has just unveiled a GOP alternative that would eliminate the mandate to purchase insurance but still offer tax credits for low-income Americans to buy insurance. And certainly nobody likes to pay taxes. And uh, if something, let's just use the example of the medical device tax, if it gets repealed, certainly others affected by the health care law will be lining up to have their taxes repealed as well. How can the GOP proposals pay for the changes they'd like to see? Well, I mean, I, I think that the math may not immediately line up, but they are also proposing to do away with things like the Medicaid expansions. Uh, I think the feeling is that something like the medical device tax is something that does not maybe uh, gut the law, and it affects some Democrats in states where there's large device manufacturers. And there have been a few test votes, non-binding votes on things like budget resolutions, where, where a fair number of Democrats have put themselves on record as opposing this. So mm -hmm. it becomes kind of a political cudgel for the opponents of the law to say, so no bend at all. You love this law so much, you want to keep every mm -hmm. T and mm -hmm. I. You know, we recently had uh, Stephen Brill on the show, and he's talking about his new book, The America's a bitter pill, which exposed the cultural underbelly in Washington uh, that led to the crafting of the ACA. More gets spent in the healthcare lobby than gets spent in military uh, industrial complex. And you've exposed the sausage making of the Beltway. And uh, what are you seeing as you as you look out? There's a lot in play, both in Washington and at state capitals. Yeah, and I mean, I think this was an exceptional law in that it really reshaped the entire medical mm -hmm. supply chain. I think what's happening is is from the beginning when the Obama administration outlined its ambitions, it activated pretty much everyone up and down the supply chain, hospitals, drug makers. Now the lobbying is focused on, you know, myriad rules that the CMS, the Department of Health and Human Services, is kicking out that continues to clarify the law. So there there continues to be, you know, full-time lobbying frenzy and lots of money being thrown to this, analogous to, to the way that defense companies and communities uh, rally behind certain weapon systems when mm -hmm. they're being looked at for budgetary savings. Another piece that we haven't focused on so much is the time-limited nature of some of the benefits under it. Can you talk about the the challenge of getting that Medicaid pay parity to be reconciled anytime soon? 
Well, I think the reason that these were temporary commitments and funding is that if they had made them permanent, it would have just driven the, the estimated cost of the law mm-hmm. astronomical, mm-hmm. and there's no way from a political perspective anyone would have voted for it. So with um, Medicaid pay parity and primary care, this was a real problem because the law envisions Medicaid becoming one of the, the primary vehicles to expand coverage and to improve you know, preventive care, and it counts on primary care professionals, but this uh, pay bump, as it were, expired uh, at the end of the year without mm-hmm. Congress taking action. And now there's talk about reviving it and perhaps rolling it into whatever doc fix legislation emerges in March. Um, it may be revived, but if it doesn't get revived, you're just going to end up having a patchwork where some states are, are uh, taking care of the parity and, and others are, are not, and um, it, it will create a bit of a chaotic landscape. We're speaking today with Adriel Bettelheim, Managing Editor for Health at CQ Roll Call, a subsidiary of the Economist Group. CQ Roll Call is a leading uh, provider of congressional news and legislative tracking, boasting the largest press corps in Capitol Hill. You know, uh, early on, the tens of billions of dollars were put in for uh, meaningful use, really trying to change the whole landscape of the use of electronic health record. And the president has recently, again, made his agenda clear that we must build an infrastructure for medical and health data collection that will enhance targeted precision uh, medicine. Uh, Can you tell our listeners more about the president's proposal and what it means for the national health agenda moving forward? Well, on precision medicine, it is a commitment uh, relatively small uh, in this year's the, mm-hmm. the budget just released, the fiscal 2016 budget, about $215 million to better understand the genetic underpinnings of disease, cancer, diabetes, other very common afflictions, and to use precision medicine that attacks the individual patient's genomic profile to come up with more customized treatments. Um, they're envisioning a large amount of the sum uh, to go to the NIH uh, to set up a cohort of at least a million volunteers to participate in research to boost understanding of these diseases, but it, it is a more than just a rallying cry, and it makes them look uh, a little bit ahead and, and with the times, understanding that, that we're not in an era of as many big blockbuster drugs anymore, and that the, the power of understanding the human genome can yield all sorts of promising cures. Even in the House and Senate, you're seeing uh, some efforts uh, to speed up FDA evaluation of more next-generation uh, 21st century cutting-edge medicines. Well, Ariel, there are certainly some measures within the healthcare law that are aimed at moving the country away from fee-for-service model and towards uh, pay-for-value or pay-for-performance, and certainly Medicare has come out strongly uh, recently saying what a significant shift it expects to see away from fee-for-service and towards value. Uh, we also... Um, you know, certainly saw some penalties for uh, high readmission rates to hospitals, and that seems to have been effective. Readmission rates are down for Medicare. We also see a proposal to finally repeal the sustainable growth rate formula for compensating providers who treat Medicare patients. Can you, first of all, for our listeners, explain what that sustainable growth rate formula is, and then what payment reforms, uh, what do you think is likely to come to fruition? 
Well, the sustainable growth rate is um, a formula that was enshrined in a late 90s budget law that basically dictates cuts to Medicare providers. And it has been criticized almost from enactment, and Congress has acted to block these scheduled cuts on an almost annual basis, and another one of which uh, will be expiring at the end of March. Uh, They would love to totally kill this formula and never subject Medicare uh, providers to these kind of cuts again, but they have to find a way of paying for the cost. And the cost has been estimated at, you know, something like $140 billion. And, uh, you know, you, you would have to do something pretty big and significant to make it revenue neutral, which is the mantra here in Washington now. You can't propose anything big or small without having to pay for it. So that's where this effort has been high-centered. And in all likelihood, at the end of March, they'll pass another one or two year or nine month or some temporary patch while they continue to talk over uh, whether they can somehow come up with a permanent replacement for SGR. Uh, the issue of value-driven purchasing that you raise is is very big deal. The, the uh, Medicare, as you mentioned, uh, just announced they're going to raise from 20% to 30% by 2016 new targets paying doctors and hospitals for the quality of care they're providing, not just for the volume of services. And this is a very big deal because uh, the fee-for-service system has been enshrined in these big government health programs forever. Um, but they're anticipating by 2018 half of Medicare fee-for-service could be shifted to one of these new models, and that could amount to $213 billion or so. Mm. Uh, so the question is, you know, do you need new legislation? Can they do this all administratively? Um, and and how can you incentivize some of this? And, and, you know, they're using all sorts of mechanisms. They have these accountable care organizations, which were created by the health law and allow doctors and hospitals and other providers to share in any savings they get if they coordinate care. Uh, bundled payments, another idea where they, they Medicare would start paying groups of providers a set amount for a particular case. And then again, as you say, there's also a penalty side of this. Uh, the HHS secretary has talked about more savings coming from measures such as penalizing the, uh, the hospitals whose patients are discharged and then readmitted within a month. The question is how they phase them in if it's gently enough that it doesn't endanger a great deal of opposition from the providers and uh, whether they can be a little more clear on what these accountable care organizations and new models are. And, I mean, there are real ones out there, but there, there needs to be a little more skin on the bones uh, to make people willing to contract with these entities. You know, you've done some analysis on healthcare uh, spending landscape and love to hear your projections for spending growth moving forward. Uh, millions of more Americans are going to come into the Medicare system as the population ages, but also sort of interested in the amount we spend. We spend about $3 trillion a, a year in healthcare. You know, the question is, uh, is that bad? It's probably bad if you compare it to the outcomes that European nations get on their health care. So, but the question is, if we got good outcomes, would it be okay to spend this amount? And, you know, there's sort of the implications of if we start reducing this by large numbers, sort of have the same effect that happened in the defense industry years ago when they, they were trimming down sort of the erosion of some of the employment and the like. So a lot of moving parts to this, but bigger question about uh, sort of the growth as we move forward. But the underbelly of this is uh, about outcomes and uh, and then about jobs. 
Yeah, well, first, I'm not an actuary or an economist, so I sort of have to believe what the the people getting paid a lot more than me are projecting. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I, I guess the projections we're seeing are not like some of the major increases in the health sector that were seen in the 1990s right. and 2000s. So first of all, to put that in context, um, I think you know if the economy continues to, to recover and the health law expands coverage and baby boomers continue to join Medicare, uh, you're going to see health spending grow. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. I think the projections now are something on the order of uh, 5.7% annually through 2023. And that's more than a percentage point ahead of the overall GDP. So, so health share of the economy is going to rise from about 17.2 percent to over 19 percent by 2023, and that's more than five trillion dollars. Um, I think what's difficult to address is, is a little sometimes precisely pinpointing the drivers behind the inflation. And a lot of people like to point to overutilization, how every patient wants the latest treatment and the most high-tech tests, and the doctors are, are loath to deny that, and the insurers are intimidated to deny that. Um, so there's that sort of tension. Um, but, I, I, you know, we'll see what happens uh, as they begin to move to these different payment models we're discussing, whether they can actually, you know, bend the curve as, as the Obamacare architects were talking about. It's worth mentioning that that this economic argument um, was really one of the essential uh, arguments for enacting the law in the first place. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was the social good of expanding coverage to millions of newly covered people, previously uninsured people. But to sell this to the financial elites and the people who buy our treasury bonds, they had to make a point that this will eventually deliver long-term savings. That's very much an open question, what will happen. Well, from uh, where I sit in the domain of primary care and community-based care, uh, so much positive has come out of the Affordable Care Act. But almost from the very beginning, we have been keenly aware that the Supreme Court was an unlikely partner in this health care reform and certainly uh, has played a very vital role uh, in the launching of the law. The landmark decision upheld the legality of the law but allowed states to choose whether to expand Medicaid. I guess that was three years ago now. Time flies quickly. Um, And that resulted in a patchwork quilt quilt across the country in terms of coverage. But uh, certainly we've seen uh, good results where it has expanded. But now we've uh, got the high court ready to hear this challenge on the legality of the tax subsidies for those purchasing insurance through the federal exchange. And certainly that is so core and fundamental uh, to the success, I think, of the Affordable Care Act. What are the potential implications of the decision for ongoing legislative challenges to the Affordable Care Act in that area? Well, I mean, the arguments are March 4th in the Supreme Court case. Uh, many of us were surprised that the justices took it on because it, it focuses essentially on an interpretation of six words in the law <laughs> and whether the subsidies for insurance coverage will be made available to every state as the uh, IRS has interpreted uh, the the law, or whether they are just uh, supposed to be directed at states that took the trouble to create their own exchanges. Right. Uh, so it, depending on how you count these exchanges, it could affect subsidies in 34 or 37 states and uh, millions of people who um, have you know, received the coverage uh, starting last year uh, would conceivably have their, their care arrangements thrown into chaos. Um, 
the first thing we don't know is how the justices would rule if they upheld this argument. Uh, would they make you know some retroactive accommodations, or would just all 34 state, all the people in these 34 states, instantly lose their subsidies? Uh, what would happen to people who are in the pipeline who applied for these things? And, and depending on how sweeping or limited uh, the decision is, that you know would would certainly open the door for both administrative fixes that that uh, Obama's team could make, or legislation. Um, but it's hard to imagine this Congress and this president agreeing on very much, uh, especially if something as fundamental as the the subsidies for insurance coverage and the, the entire reshaped insurance market gets thrown into utter chaos. So we don't know uh, what's going to happen. And there are a variety of replacement plans and contingency plans that are being floated out there. But it's, it's we're at the point where people are still kind of talking past each other. Mm -hmm. And uh, the HHS Secretary Burwell comes up to Senate Finance Committee to talk about her budget and gets berated by the Republicans for you know refusing to discuss contingency plans. So mm -hmm. it's a lot of bad juju out there still. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> a sweeping ruling like this uh, is, is certainly just going to fray nerves and plunge uh, the country and a lot of lawmakers who are a little you know have a little bit of health law fatigue right <laughs> yeah, back into yeah. the right back into the vortex. <laughs> We're speaking today with Adriel Bettelheim, Managing Editor for Health at CQ Roll Call, a subsidiary of The Economist Group. You can follow his work by going to uh, cqrollcall.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at A-B-E-T-T-E-L. Adriel, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations in Healthcare. Nice talking to you. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in US politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Is there a connection between illegal immigration and the recent measles outbreak? That's what Representative Mo Brooks suggested. But while it is difficult to pinpoint precise origins of disease outbreaks, there is no evidence supporting the link between the recent outbreaks and illegal immigration. In a radio interview, Brooks, a Republican from Alabama, said that the immunization practices in the home countries of immigrants who are living in the U.S. illegally could be responsible for outbreaks like the recent spread of measles. That outbreak includes most of the 102 cases in 14 states in the month of January. It is likely that the outbreak originated from outside the U.S., but the director of the CDC's National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases has said illegal immigration isn't the likely culprit. Americans returning from travel abroad or foreign visitors could have brought measles to Disneyland parks in California. The countries under investigation as a possible source include Indonesia, India, and the United Arab Emirates. For part of 2014, the CDC was able to pinpoint the origin for 280 cases of measles. It counted 45 direct importations of the disease, which included 40 U.S. residents returning home and five foreign visitors. Only three of the transfers came from the Americas. As for countries' vaccination rates, back in the 1980s, Central American countries had low rates of measles vaccinations, but that's no longer the case. Since 2000, those countries' rates for one-year-olds have been largely on par with or have exceeded that of the United States. 
And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Falling is a common experience among the elderly, and that is not good news. Hip fractures in the elderly are an enormous, devastating, expensive death sentence of an injury. If you're over 65 and you've fallen and broken your hip, 25% of them will die within 12 months. Another 25% will never be able to live independently, and a full 75% will never regain full mobility. That statistic got former airbag executive Drew Lucatos thinking, what if you could apply the technology used in airbags to create wearable devices that protect a person from the impact of falling? So similar to the auto industry, our government has spent billions in about two decades on fall prevention programs for the elderly. What I'm suggesting is we make that same strategic shift and we begin focusing on intelligent protection of our elderly. So they did their research and found a combination of accelerometers and other sensors on the band worn around the waist could deploy within six milliseconds of sensing an imminent fall and protective bags unfurl around the hip joints before impact with the floor, significantly reducing the blow to the joint. Physics has taught us that bodies in motion stay in motion until they meet an immovable object, right? In this case, the immovable object is the living room floor. With the right technology, we can ensure that these people that meet that inevitable immovable object, which is the floor, can not only survive that accident, they can walk away. He founded Active Protect Technologies, and while his initial focus was providing a significant barrier to devastating injury in adults, he has additional potential markets as well. With this type of technology, we can protect against concussions. We can now protect Coumadin patients. We can protect postal workers when it's icy out. We can protect our military soldiers from IEDs. A simple retooling of airbag technology in a wearable device that could greatly reduce the devastation of hip fractures, leading to better health outcomes, lower health costs, and better quality of life. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Mazzelli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center.